Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 84. We're up to early 1986, and the SADF had learnt a great deal through 1985, particularly what FAPLO were up to. In the time of the Joint Commission you've heard about, both sides were actively collecting intelligence about each other, their operating procedure, their weaknesses, their strengths. After years of strategy and diplomacy, the protagonists in this war had moved firmly from attacking the opponent's strategy and diplomacy as the first phase to a new phase, where victory apparently lay in only one outcome, destroying the enemy's army. More material, more heavy weapons, actions, reactions, more deaths. Things were becoming more bitter, and the South African government was up against the wall. They decided to take a few leaves out of the books of dictatorships like General Galtieri's Argentina and developed death squads and torturers comprised of police and civilians. They were known as the Civil Cooperation Bureau and some would join SADF Special Force Operations from the end of 1985. As you're going to hear, the professional soldiers in the Rekis and 3-2 Battalion regarded these civilians and police as amateurs in the art of war. They were ideologues first, imbued with an almost manic hatred for the enemy, and this blinding and visceral hatred was going to lead to major abuses of power in the coming years. When you're fighting a war against terror, it's very easy to start acting like terrorists yourselves. Then, of course, it's no longer a war but an exercise in a diminishing set of strategic political returns particularly as the ANC's MK was now targeting white civilians for special attention. The PAC were also changing their targets. In October 1985, a chicken farm near Bushbuck Ridge in the eastern Transvaal, today's in Pumalanga, was attacked by men armed with AK-47s. Landmines were being laid by the dozen inside South Africa. In December of that year, a bucky carrying families was travelling on the farm Chatsworth, 45 kilometres west of Messina, when it hit a landmine. Six died, four children, two adults. Two children and three adults were injured. A farmer and his wife were shot dead in a night of attacks outside Utenhagen in the Eastern Cape. The PAC's armed wing uplock claimed responsibility. The most devastating bomb in 1985 was the Toti Sunlam Centre blast two days before Christmas, which killed three women and two boys and wounded 61 others. MK Kodra Andrew Zondor was behind this act, which the ANC said was against the operating procedure, although they defended him later, saying the bombing had been understandable. Zondo, of course, was captured and executed. MK Condres continued targeting civilians, whatever the ANC was saying to their international friends. In June 1986, Magoo's bar in Durban was blown up in a car bomb, killing three, wounding 69. The man who laid the bomb, Robert McBride, was only saved from execution by a reprieve and since then has had his trouble with the law, including an arrest in Mozambique for gun running, then arrested in South Africa for drunken driving and leaving the scene of an accident, and then he was fired in 2021 from the State Security Agency after four South African spies were rumbled in Maputo. And so, with people like McBride operating for the ANC's MK, Pretoria's decision was to create the CCB, and the covert war was their way of fighting fire with fire. The big strategic problem with this approach is once you begin fighting like terrorists, you become one. What's more, the CCB was to cause SADF special forces more trouble than they were worth. Their discipline was poor, their training aligned with a kind of apartheid fundamentalism rather than a clear strategic vision. I'll explain more as we go. But first, back to the ground war in the Western Theatre, Angola. 
FAPLA, supported by the Russians and Cubans, began their annual attack on UNITA in early 1986, and South African special forces were on the ground working with the rebel movement monitoring and sabotaging. One of the recce's was Kua Stadler, whose book on small team missions behind enemy lines is an exceptional document. It was published in 2016, and for training and operational insights, it's first class. By the way, he tells a great story about picking up a troopy hitchhiker in 1986 who proceeded to boast about being a recce. This undercooked Rufi told Stadler false stories about how the recce's made you nurture puppies until they were grown, then you were forced to kill them with bare hands to prove your manliness. The hapless sop claimed he'd killed the enemy silently and repeated lie after lie until Stadler pulled a Beretta from under his seat and stopped the car. Listen, brother, said Stadler to the ashen-faced liar, I am an officer with the South African Special Forces, your Reiki, and before you ever share your shit with anyone else, I'll just sort you out for good. Get out of my car. The troopy jumped out and ran away. Stadler pretended to chase him, then dumped his balsack, the kit bag, on the road and drove off. This story is important. I hear a lot of people these days boasting about what they did in the border war. The truth is, those who boast of their individual prowess in war are those who have not fought in a war. Anyone who's a proper vet knows that. These weekend warriors, some barely of an age to have made it into the army, demean the real heroes of this border war. Beware the big mouth who boasts of his exploits in the 1980s. He probably never saw any action at all. At the same time, we do have illuminating first-person accounts that have been published, most fairly recently, as the veterans age and start noting their histories for posterity. We'll hear about one of the two-person missions Kostadla undertook into Angola in late 1986 in the next episode, just to get a feel for what these elite operators did for a living. By now, the incursions into South Africa from Zimbabwe were growing on a monthly basis, and Pretoria's counter-revolutionary war program swung into gear. The SADF was also ordered to conduct preemptive strikes against the frontline states, the newly independent nations of Southern Africa. The CCB and state security organs were now sending parcel bombs to ANC leaders in Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Zambia, Botswana, Lesotho, and in Mozambique. In the Western Theatre, 3-2 Battalion launched Operation Goma on the 18th of March 1986. That's where four reconnaissance teams were sent to gather information about the bridge at Quito, Guanavali, and the surrounding area. Fapla's 1st Brigade was based there, and 21 reckeys under command of Sergeant H.J. Stunder, not to be confused with Stadler, A.F. Mendes, and G. Skippers were joined by a medical doctor. They were to monitor UNITA and Fapla activity around Kako Coutinho in the Kazombo block. A second team of 12 under Sergeant Harry Holland and Corporal A. Pinto were ordered to the Quito Guanavali Bridge. They were going to collect crucial information although the 270 kilometers between Rundu and Quito Quanavali meant carrying supplies for 30 days. The material was flown into Mavinga in a C-130 transport plane. It took eight days for the team to arrive at Mavinga overland. They were delayed by UNITA checkpoints on the way. Jonas Savimbi, back in Yamba HQ, was called constantly to grant permission. After all these delays, the 3-2 recon team took only six days to pick out the bases, but there were unconstant pressure from the commanders. Eventually, this 12-man team arrived back at the relay station in Mavinga to await the launch of an artillery strike on the bridge positions at Quito. The Angolans realized that their air defense systems needed bolstering, but a far greater problem was their erratic supply of water to their troops. They often began their attacks during the dry season and failed to carry enough water reserves. 
The SAA Air Force in particular tried to target water tankers at times. Far more important right now were the reports that the Sukhoi-25 fighters had been shipped into Angola and were based at the southern port of Namibe. The airbase was well protected there, with SAM-3s and batteries of AAA guns of various calibers. So in June 1986, the Air Force launched Operation Shanti using two buccaneers under Commandant Labuskakni and Major Mouton in one, and Major Sibritz and Napier in a second. They were tasked with flying over the base to take photographs and hopefully identify the Su-25s. Two pumas and a stick of paratroopers would be part of the emergency team should a buccaneer be shot down. Each plane carried a lot of long-range oblique photography pod. The idea was to fly in at low altitude to avoid radar, around 500 feet AGL, then pop up to 21,700 feet just before the airfield, which would give them an angled view of Namibia Airbase. The standoff distance meant they'd be outside the range of the AAA guns, but they were still susceptible to the SAM-3s. They took off at 1100 hours 15 on Sunday the 29th of June 1986 and flew north, skirting the vast Angolan escarpment, and then turning west for the final approach run into the target. But a layer of cloud at 2,500 feet meant the base would be out of sight when they pitched up to 27,500 feet, so Commandant Labuskakni took a calculated risk. They flashed into the Angolan base at below 2,000 feet, cameras rolling, flinching as they expected bursts of AAA fire or SAM-3s, but nothing happened. They had surprised the Angolans, and when the two returned to Vatikloof Air Force Base, the rolls of film were removed and taken to intelligence for interpretation. And there they were, Su-25s, clearly visible in their revertments alongside the runways. But not everyone was happy, despite the mission's success. Labuskakni was roundly criticised by senior officers for flying so close to the airfield, thereby endangering themselves and their buccaneers. You can't make everyone happy, you know. By December 1985, Fapla's last push to overcome UNITA at Mavinga had failed, along with the attempted overrunning Jumba, UNITA's HQ. You heard last week how the Russians and Cubans were flooding into Angola, and a constant stream of convoys began shipping hundreds of tons of equipment from Minong to Fapla's 13th Brigade at Guito Guanavali. The South Africans had their own plans, which would kick off in February 1986, when 3-2 Battalion was deployed around Guito Guanavali and Movinga, and reconnaissance teams began infiltrating further north to towns like Cajo Coutinho, 500 kilometres inside Angola. In May, 3-2 Battalion, supported by Western Air Command, along with Special Forces and UNITA, were ordered to capture Quito Quanavali by the third week of July. The initial plan involved a night attack, including air and artillery strikes, and known as Operational Signal 947-4. But this was cancelled at the last moment in favour of an artillery bombardment using multiple rocket launchers and a battery of 155mm G5 field guns. The town was coming in for increased attention, but could not be captured by the South Africans, so they focused on bombarding it for two days instead. The Angolans appeared unaffected by the strikes, so the SADF went back to the drawing board. And lying on this drawing board were previous plans for something known as Operation Southern Cross. It was imperative to drive Fapla out of Quito Quanavali, or at least reduce their operational capacity to attack UNITA at Bavinga, lying to the southeast of that town. This turned into a plan that would have been the biggest conventional op of 3-2's history. After 10 years of fighting in the bush war, mostly clandestine, it was their moment to face off in numbers against the MPLA's army. There would be four rifle companies from 3-2, 
Support for mortars, anti-aircraft guns, anti-tank sections, and assault Pioneer platoons, as well as a 120mm mortar platoon seconded from 61 mechanized battalion, Papa battery multiple rocket launchers, a rifle 90 anti-tank squadron, an Acefark anti-aircraft platoon, and 1,500 UNITA soldiers. They began training in earnest using a scale model of Quito Cuanavali, and by the 15th of July, supply drops had turned Mavinga into an ops forward logistic depot. By the 21st of July, G5 artillery arrived at Buffalo from Forsyth. On the 29th, four multiple rocket launchers, two Acefark AA systems, and a BRDM SA 9 missile system were all flown into Mavinga. Everything was ready. Three two battalion troops were highly motivated and expected to finally remove Fapla from Quito Quanavali. Then came a shocking order. The battalion was told to step back and allow UNITO to assault Quito by itself, with three two only providing support for the artillery. They were going to be babysitters. The troops were bitterly upset. This major conventional operation was going to cement their names. They'd trained for weeks. Now they cursed the politicians sitting back in Pretoria. It was with some bitterness that they blamed what they called the bloody politicians, sitting on their fat behinds in the safety and comfort of Pretoria, deciding that UNITA was going to commit to the most important battle of the war. They weren't far wrong about that. The half-hearted measure would be rude by the SADF Topras later, as the terrible battles for Quito over the next year would reveal. Still, as professionals, three two officers realized the orders were orders. By the 4th of August, Colonel Eddie Fulion's tactical HQ was set up 28 kilometers east of Quito Guanavale on the banks of the Hubei River. 3-2's Delta and Bravo companies were deployed with the artillery 60 kilometers east, and two platoons from Gulf were now ensconced 17 kilometers east of Quito, while a platoon supported engineers who were trying to build a pontoon bridge across the Quito River, 7 kilometers south of the vital road bridge. Meanwhile, Reckes had moved much closer and were monitoring enemy activity inside the town. The attack was postponed for seven days because Jonas Savimbi wanted to take command of this major battle himself. Colonel Kurs Bom Laubscher led the artillery unit. Also, die Brainmann, Colonel Jan Breitenbach, had flown in to act as a UNITA advisor. The opening attack would be mounted by a UNITA brigade focused on Fapla's 25th Brigade east of the Quito River, which would be a kind of decoy to draw off tanks from the 13th Brigade based in the town. Then they'd capture the Quito Bridge, and a day later the 2nd UNITA Brigade would launch the main attack from the south and west directly on the town and its airfield. So the South Africans waited in vain until mid-August, the 13th, when Colonel Fulun shifted his HQ to high ground 4 kilometers southeast of Quito. This was a hot zone, and MiG-23 and Su-22 aircraft were spotted patrolling the skies. This was also bad news for the G5s deployed 30 kilometers to the southeast along the Hubei River. It was even worse for the multiple rocket launchers, which had to move much closer. They were only 14 kilometers from Quito. The artillery barrage was set for 8 p.m. on the 14th of August, but by 2 p.m. on the 15th, they were still waiting. There was no word from Unita. At 1600 hours 40, Fulian received a message that a Russian aircraft had been sent from Lubango to track down the South Africans' artillery, forcing the artillery to shift position just in case. Eventually, the anticipated bombardment began much later that night, and UNITA's direct assault led to the town falling. There's some dispute about all of this, with Brigadier Renato, its commander, claiming they had overcome defenders, but then UNITA was forced to withdraw immediately as Fapla counterattacked fiercely.
The 2nd Unity Brigade, which was supposed to launch from the south and west, had disappeared. But the SADF artillery laid waste to the town. It was ablaze. They also bombed the airfield, rendering it inoperative, and wreckies destroyed the Quito Road Bridge. The Russian planes were buzzing around and opened fire on a UNITA base close to Fulun's HQ, but it was empty. Three of Apple's six radar installations were damaged, and the fuel and ammunition depot blazed for three days. UNITA was also using US Stinger missiles, and claimed they hit three MiG-23s and shot them down. The Russians denied this. Nine PT-76 tanks were taken out, five by the SADF artillery, the rest by UNITA ground troops. Then it was decided to withdraw on the 17th of August. Back in Pretoria, the top brass were concerned about this entire exercise. UNITA had not acted quickly enough and their conventional training was weak. They were better suited to operate as a guerrilla movement. By trying to take a whole town as a conventional army, they had belied their own weaknesses. They had very little in the way of heavy weapons. They had no air force. The artillery was no match for Fapla and the Russians and the Cubans. They needed the South Africans. UNITA's entire army was now concentrated around Quito Cuanavali, so it seemed only a matter of days, weeks perhaps, that the Angolans would renew their counterattacks against this rebel movement. So just to check, a few weeks later, on the 17th of September, 3-2's Major Peter War and his reconnaissance team were flown to Cajo Coutinho, that's around 270 kilometers northeast of Quito, along with two Unimogs and 60 days of supplies. Cajo Coutinho, by the way, is now called Lumbala, it's about 40 kilometers directly west of the Zambian border. Their mission was to monitor what was going on between Fapla and Udita. It wasn't long before they made a heart-stopping discovery. Driving north on the main road out of Cargo Coutinho, they ran into two entire Fapla brigades which had moved north and west of that town. Major War met with Jonas Avimbi and then sent recon teams to watch the two Fapla brigades as closely as they dared. Inevitably, both of these began to move southwards on the 6th of October, but by the 1st of November, Unita's defences had stiffened and they brought this rolling attack to a halt north of Kako Coutinho. Other major operations were in the pipeline, one involving Kurs Stadler of the Rekis called Operation Coliseum, which was to target Swapo's eastern front around Techumuteti. 3-2 Battalion was going to be involved in that op, which grew into a second phase called Kakapian. But back in Pretoria, the intelligence reports were being collected that showed FAPLA was reinforcing its units around Quito Kwanavali by a massive Soviet airlift. And UNITA's Jonas Savimbi appeared to be oblivious to impending doom. This was going to have repercussions regionally and lead to Operation Modular, which was what writer Leopold Scholes calls the Clash of the Titans. It was going to lead to 61 mechs redeployment inside Angola with significant consequences for everyone in this border war. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, Dotsies. Mm-hmm.